Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is always Oscar season. I'm Mike. And I'm Brian. In this show, we reevaluate every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century and decide whether to keep it or kick it from its Oscar pedestal. Oh, spicy delivery there, Brian. <laughs> I like it. If you've been following along in the show, we are just about to kick off our miniseries on the films of 2006. But since the Academy just released its nominations for Best Picture from last year, 2021, we decided to take a little detour to talk about some new movies instead for a change. So... In 2021, the nominees for Best Picture are Don't Look Up, Belfast, Coda, Drive My Car, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, (laughs) The Power of the Dog, Nightmare Alley, West Side Story, and today's movie, Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Here's the trailer. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands. You can see spice in the air. The outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. What's to become of our world? Duncan, can I trust you with something? Yes, always, you know that. I've been having dreams about a girl on Arrakis. I don't know what it means. Dreams make good stories. But everything important happens when we're awake. Hey, you, put on some muscle? I did? No. We are a house of Trades. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Gurney. I am smiling. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts! I know you. There's something awakening in my mind. You need to face your fears. Come with me. They're not human, they're brutal. The Duke's son sees too much. This is my doom. Kill them all. God in heaven. Get everything with guns off the ground! Go! This is an extermination. They're picking my family off one by one. Let's fight back demons. Dad, what if I'm not the future of House Atreides? A great man doesn't seek to lead. He's called to it. But if your answer is no, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. My son. If anything happens, will you protect Paul with my life? Only together can we stand a chance.
deadly serious trailer. Deadly serious movie. Is there no? any? Is there any uh, lightness? Jason Momoa, I guess, joking around with Timothy uh, Chalamet no. a little bit. That, that's a real chip-in well, of a joke, right? <laughs> it kind of comes out of nowhere. I think well, they did that just for the trailer. Any of the, uh, a lot of the interaction between there, it's it feels a little bit like it's, they're trying to break up the uh, seriousness a little bit. Have you ever read the book? No, I was going to ask you the same. I have not read the book either, so I feel a little bit like an outsider, you know, entering into this world. I don't know, like... I, I didn't even bother to try to keep all the the tribal names straight. Or <laughs> there anything. are a lot. It's a lot them. to keep track. It's a very complicated book, complicated movie. Um, but so <clears throat> a little rundown. Um, Dune is was nominated for ten Academy Awards. We don't know which one they won yet. Um, as we're recording this in February of 2022. Visual effects, I'm sure. Yep, there's a lot of visuals, a lot of technical ones, uh, sound visuals, production design, which is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, Hans Zimmer was nominated for his 11th Oscar, or he received his 11th nomination. He only won one time. I'm a big fan of yes, the music. Yes, the music is great. Movie. He won for The Lion King Disney's The Lion King in 1995. Wow. Okay. And, but he's been nominated so many times other than that. <clears throat> um, editing, best picture, makeup, design, cinematography, Greg Fraser. I'm not sure how to pronounce Greg, but G-R-E-I-G, Greg Fraser, And then adapted screenplay. This was also one of the AFI's top 10 movies of the year. It was Peter Travers' number eight. Uh, it was made for $165 million. Box office was 400 but all these box offices in the past couple of years have to have a little asterisk because of the streaming component is quite a bit more dramatic. It was released um, in theaters in the United States, and then it, it started streaming in October of 20, um, 2021. So less than a week after its domestic release, though, Dune Part 2 was confirmed. They are just kind of give it a week, make sure it's going to mm-hmm. make a lot of money. Yeah. Um, a little bit of background also, Alejandro Jodorowsky, Jodorowsky acquired the rights in the 1970s to make a 14-hour adaptation. <laughs> it fell through. Um, and But that was turned in, his efforts were turned into a documentary in 2013, the making of this movie that didn't actually come about. Um, David Lynch made Dune in 1984. Did you ever see that? I saw it just recently, a couple of weeks really? ago. I've been, I was wanting to go back yeah. and watch it, but I never got to it. It's a three-hour movie, um, poorly received. He also didn't like it, but what did you think of it? The 1984 Dune. Man, um, there's a lot to get into with, yeah. the, with Lynch's version. And it's my least favorite David Lynch movie, really? and it sounds like it's his also. Mm-hmm. Um, the special effects are very wacky and 80s-ish, but you know, I'm not, I don't really care so much about that. What's, yeah. what's sort of the weirdest about his iteration, if you want to call it that, of, of this story is because it's so dense, he uses these shortcuts to try to keep the audience caught up. Mm-hmm. And so we start with this sort of omniscient narrator who just comes on screen and just sets it all up. And as says, omniscient as Zendaya? 
<laughs> I, I guess so. And she says, you know, here's what's going on. And she kind of lays it all out and she'll mm. pop up again throughout the movie, you know, every now and then to kind of catch you up. But even worse than that, our Shh. characters' thoughts are narrated. Mm-hmm. So the characters, you'll just get a little inside glimpse in their head. Somebody will think something like, hmm, he's acting weird. I wonder if he's thinking <laughs> of betraying me, you know, stuff like that. It's uh, it's questionable. <laughs> Well, he didn't really like it too much. No, it does have some kind of interesting horror touches, though, which huh. I appreciated That's because cool. you, that gives, you know, you can see a signature on it a little bit. Yeah. Um, one other quick note on Greg Frazier, the cinematographer, which I loved the visuals in this movie. I'm a big sucker for big scale, you know, sci-fi kind of shots in general. So it was an easy sell for me. But he also shot um, Rogue One, Zero Dark Thirty, and the upcoming The Batman. So... Um, in the show, we will ask each other three questions guaranteed to produce golden takes. We will talk a little trivia and then would you keep it or kick it? We haven't really, we haven't done a top five versus top whatever the, the yeah. number here. I'm not but sure we're going to be able to do I don't that know. for this. Not this one too much. We'll but figure out something we'll see to say if at the you, end. <laughs> we'll see if you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so question number one. Okay, so as you said, this story is incredibly dense, mm-hmm. and there's a ton of lore, characters, worlds. There's a lot of made-up words, and I wanted—I <laughs> was curious too if you had come into this with any knowledge of the book or David Lynch's movie. Which another thing about Lynch is this movie I think is about two hours and thirty, thirty-five minutes. Two thirty-five, yeah. Lynch's movie is like fifteen minutes shorter, mm-hmm. and the entire story. And this mm-hmm. movie is kind of just starting. It seems at the beginning. It's like trying to do the Hobbit in one movie. Yeah, I mean, this movie is ending. <laughs> it seems at the beginning yeah. of kind of the story in a way. Gotcha. So all of that stuff in mind did you have any trouble following what is going on here at times i at times i did but not not horribly i mean i was you you know they have little they have little uh cheats like at one point there's you know they're overlooking uh a battle going on and like one some of them look gray and some look tan (laughs) you know i don't know (laughs) there's things like that that they try to keep it um Again, that didn't it didn't really bother me though. I kind of figured that this is a movie where if you really care about every little, you know, political detail or every tribal change, um you probably do have to kind of read the book. You have to make it more of a matter of study and whether I ever do that, I don't know. I mean, I actually have the book on on Audible. Um and I tr- I started listening to it one time and I was like this is something I should probably read and not just listen to because it's a little too much, but you need to get um, your highlighter out. Yeah. No kidding. You got a cross reference and stuff. Have one of those boards on your wall where you connect everything (laughs) with red string, you know? Uh So this is my, this was my first exposure to it also because I saw it before David Lynch's version Mm -hmm. and kind of like you, I got the big stuff, you know, I, I understood this lore about the one, that there's a betrayal, mm-hmm. that there are different planets that we call houses. Mm-hmm. I get all that, the importance of spice in this yep. universe. But there are some things here that were confusing to me. Like, I, even after the movie ended and I'm leaving the theater, I realized that I wasn't 100% sure if Stellan Skarsgård's character was the emperor or if he was just another leader of a planet. And I think it's because he's kind of the only one who who has what seem to be superpowers in this. You know, he kind of mm-hmm. floats, which mm-hmm. I think is actually what he's wearing. I love the horror visuals of that of his whole character. Mm-hmm. Again, how he fit in with the Emperor and the House of Atreides. Yeah. I was yeah, I guess I was a little a little foggy on that too, which it didn't really bother me though. I don't know. I, I'm willing to for like, you know, we all have our favorite genres that we're willing to forgive certain things. 
Um, I'm not so willing to forgive, you know, some silly humor. A lot of times it just Mm -hmm. gets boring to me. A lot of hand-to-hand combat I get bored with. Um, with, with a lot of sci-fi though, I'm willing to kind of say, you know what, I'll, I'll let them have their political fun. Um, but sometimes I felt the same way with Lord of the Rings too. Like occasionally I'm like, uh, who are they allied with? Yeah. You know? Oh, well, let's just keep watching the action. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I could see that because you can yeah. just, you can sort of follow the, I don't know. There's like in a, there's an, there's an emotion tied to the dramatic arcs and you can just kind of follow yeah. that. Oh, so now this is important. I guess I'll just invest yeah. in this scene. It, but I do think it is a little bit of a problem that especially if this is only half of the story, yeah. which by the way, it would have been really weird if they didn't make a second part of this. Yeah. So I'm glad that that got greenlit. <laughs> um, but if this is only one part of it, the idea being that Villeneuve is stretching it out, you know, using more time so that we do understand seems a little odd that you would come out not really feeling like you do understand exactly what is going on in this in this universe i think it's really hard for people who are really passionate about dune which a lot of the filmmakers were you know they decided to to Mm -hmm. go with this project as opposed to others because of dune it's sort of like someone who is really into star wars making a star wars movie and a little harder for them to bring in all the non-star wars fans Um, and I don't know if they even care that much about bringing in all the people who, you know, dismiss Dune from the beginning. Um, but yeah, I could see where you gotta, it's, it's a tough calculation. Yeah. Cause it feels a little like a two and a half hour prologue. Yeah. But then at the end, I'm kind of like, I, I guess I get it. You know, I, I can, (laughs) I can go along for it. And that's a weird reaction to have after two and a half hours of setup, essentially. What what I saw, I didn't really think of it as just purely setup. I mean, I think the movie does stand alone. It does. It stands alone in that it's a satisfying watch, even though you know that there's clearly going to be a part two to it. I guess I felt like, um, the arc of, you know, the, the chosen prince, Paul, Paul, Timothy Chalamet, ends up essentially homeless and not the royal, you know, guy anymore, basically. And then he's probably going to end up re- re- restoring to the, the throne. I don't know. But I guess the, the, the fall from power, um, fall from influence, restarting on a sort of apocalyptic, you know, scale, um, that was intriguing to me and, and, my my simple uh, my simple mind was okay with that. Part. <laughs> my simple mind, because <laughs> he's having visions early in the movie yeah. about Arrakis and about Zendaya and about the blue eyes. So you know that he's destined to be there, yes, and to serve a greater purpose. But then basically he gets there and the credits roll. So this, I wonder. You mentioned the 1970s getting um, this 14, 14 hours. <laughs> maybe this is a TV show. You know, it maybe, could be. Maybe this is better as an HBO miniseries. We've talked about that before. That some like some. Uh, really long stories really do work better in that format, even though I don't usually watch those, but um, it could be, could be something to uh, consider. I wonder if they would have gotten the same in 20 years. I wonder (laughs) if they would have gotten the same budget though, because this, there's so much money put into the spectacle of it. And I would hate to lose that because I mean, that's my favorite thing going here. Yeah. So my question to you, first question. So Villeneuve avoided the internal monologues of David Lynch um, and he focused more heavily on Paul Timothy Chalamet, his 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 mother Rebecca Ferguson, who I think is very good, and the father Oscar Isaac, played by Oscar Isaac, 
and they have like a secret hand gesture that, that you know, to, to try to like basically overcome some of the monologue part maybe. Um, but how did you feel, did the family dynamic, did those relationship, did they work for you? Did you feel emotionally invested in that family? Not really. Um, not that they didn't work for me. Not. It's more that I just wasn't emotionally invested, you know, in Oscar Isaac. And this is a spoiler show. Again, we should yep. <laughs> we should say because this is a new movie. So I think we need to yep. clarify that even more. If you haven't seen Dune, push pause, push pause and go and Watch go see it because then. we're going to talk about some stuff that yeah. happens right now so when oscar <laughs> isaac croaks that's the magic of the, pay, of the of the pause button it lasts forever yeah when <laughs> when he gets killed mm-hmm. I, I didn't really care um but i did like that in this movie he's given that moment to actually be a good father which you don't see a whole lot in movies yeah, about I, the chosen one yeah where he basically says you're supposed to be the leader here but if you don't want to be the leader like that's your business i'm not going to force you to yeah. to do something you don't want to do that scene i thought was very powerful probably you know the most emotionally engaging part of the movie um and when he died i also it's i don't know it felt a little hokey like the cyanide gas shows up and like everybody dies instantly it felt a little and his his expression i don't know that was a little bit um not cleared out as well as I would have liked but I do like the mother character though yeah and, and the role that these sort of witches play me too I loved that part and and the, so I guess it between father and son is a little short-lived but the relationship between mother and, and son um that's really what the heart of the movie is all about and they seem to be the real power here they're the yes. ones who are the most powerful but also they're kind of in the background you know Oscar mm-hmm. Isaac is like this space king but the mother is the one who can control anybody's mind just yeah. by talking. It, she got a bigger role in this movie than the book suggests. Mm. I also read about. Um, question two. Okay. So who did Sandworms better? You tell me. This, <laughs> Tremors, or Beetlejuice? I haven't seen Tremors or Beetlejuice. Wow. <laughs> Mark Gilliland, our illustrious <laughs> producer, just shot up. His head just <laughs> popped up. Um, yeah, I apologize. Apparently that was, that was the wrong thing to say, but, but the, the sandworms to me, um, I thought I saw a preview where like it actually rose out of the sand and I guess, I don't know if I missed that. Maybe I fell asleep or something, but I thought mostly what you saw was like the mouth swallowing people like Jabba the Hutt's, uh, you know, counterpart in the sand, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. in Return of the Jedi. Yeah. But, um, yeah, sandworms were, you know, it was fine. So Beetlejuice, you're saying? Sure, yeah. I love Beetlejuice. (laughs) Well, in the second (laughs) Dune, I think we're going to see a lot more of the worms. And if you want to see more worms, watch the David Lynch version because there's some worm riding going on. (laughs) Paul rides some worms. I'm just going to give you a little spoiler. (laughs) Excellent. Uh, You can spoil a 1984 David Lynch movie all day long. Okay. Um, Okay, so my question number two is Villeneuve didn't like the fact that this was on streaming. Yeah, I understand that. He said, quote, my team and I devoted more than three years of our lives to make it a unique big screen experience. Our movies, image and sound were meticulously designed to be seen in theaters, unquote. Um, Still, even half in my van, which I watched the first (sighs) half on little screen in my van with good sound. That kills me. Um, and then I watched the other half when I got home on the Macmillan big screen, uh-huh. you know, which is at least 40 inches. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, my question is, can 
cinema survive without jolts from movies like Dune? Can cinema survive without jolts from movies like Dune? Can I think movie that cinema theaters, will always survive. Can movie theaters survive without jolts from movies like Dune? Yes, I think so. I think it's going to change because people, it's just like with, with work right now, you know, the pandemic kind of taught a lot of companies that, oh, we can do this remotely. Like not everyone has to come into a brick and mortar. And I think people- Which get, a lot of us knew from the beginning. Everyone knew from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it's the same thing with, with movies in a way. People are realizing that they like watching movies at home. There's a certain, you know, comfort there and it's cheaper, but you lose a lot. In in movies like this, you lose a lot of the spectacle. You lose the great I sound. I don't know what you're talking about. You lose the massive screen. And he's right. I mean, they devoted a lot yeah. of time and money into making this a movie that looks good and works on a big, big screen. Mm -hmm. But then other than that, just if you think of like horror movies or comedies, it works the same way. Being in that audience dynamic gives you something that you don't get when you're at home. The shared experience is, I guess that's really the question that, that, we're going to be asking ourselves for mm -hmm. the next say decade or so as things continue to shift is, is that shared experience and the immediacy of, you know, I'm watching this for the first weekend, like everybody else, how much is that worth to people? Um, and, and when you, when you have it streamable on the first weekend or shortly thereafter, you do lose that motivation to go to the movie. I guess, you know, that's obvious. That's what, that's what the argument is about. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's going to keep changing, but I, I don't think that the desire to see a movie in theater is just going to evaporate. I mean, because even it, taking away the shared experience, I'm one to go to the theater for a matinee on yeah. a weekday if I take a day <laughs> off or something, and I'm in there by myself. Yeah. But there's just something about I'm not looking at my phone if I'm in the movie yeah. theater. The dogs aren't barking. Like it, All Those I'm doing dogs. is focusing on, on the film, and that's a better way to watch a movie. Well, I have to say that um, a friend on Facebook commented that she watched this movie on IMAX. You know, mm. I was very jealous yeah. considering my, my movie screen in my, in my van. <laughs> in your van. Um, question three. <laughs> All right. So Villeneuve has now made Dune, Blade Runner 2049, Arrival, and I'll even throw Enemy, the Jake Gyllenhaal movie, in there to a certain extent. So with that set in mind, is he officially this generation sci-fi maestro? You know, that's a very good question. Um I think that the sci-fi that he's doing is pretty dynamic. Um, I did see someone comparing him to Christopher Nolan, you know, with Interstellar. And uh, I have not seen Tenet yet, but um, Inception, Interstellar kind of have sort of a vibe like that. I don't remember if there's, there's no space in Inception, is there? I don't um, think so. But it's still sci-fi-ish, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, he definitely sets himself up at this point. Uh, I'm going to bring in one of my trivia points here. Um, so Villeneuve has made, he, he made, he, this basically, there's three phases of his career. Um, the first was four low budget movies that I won't mention cause I don't really know anything about them, but phase <laughs> two was prisoners. That was his first movie with a budget of in the 40, $40 million range. He had mm -hmm. basically $5 million budget for like the first four movies. Then he had prisoners, Sicario, and Arrival in the $40 million range. Prisoners and Sicario, tough watches. I'm going to watch them again. But Arrival was like in the $40 million range. 
that seemed to kind of set the stage for moving on to phase three, which was Blade Runner. Um, that had a budget of 185. Mm-hmm. Dune is 165. We're about to see now the third movie of phase three in a year or two, which is going to be Dune part two, which is also going to have a huge budget, probably in the 165 plus range. Yep. Um, so it does make me wonder like, yeah, like you're saying, this is, this is, this guy is it, you know, for these, uh, blockbuster, uh, sci-fi movies. I wonder where he goes from there. I mean, he might get, he might even get a Marvel movie someday. (laughs) What do you think? I don't know if he wants a Marvel movie (laughs) and I think he's getting big enough budgets as it is, but prisoners really powerful. powerful. Incendies is in his early. Okay. That was uh, one of the the low budget ones. Yeah. That's a pretty incredible movie. Really. It's, it's a challenging Mm -hmm. watch, but it's pretty great. Um, and I love Arrival and that, Me too. that 45, wow. 47 million. We agreed on a movie. That's yeah. Great. And that budget is like enough to make it look beautiful, it but it's like not huge. And then in these recent two, Blade Runner and this movie, the spectacle is bigger. Everything is bigger. Yeah. And although I kind of love that he's given the money to make these sweeping epics, I kind of feel like the bigger the spectacle gets, the more emotionally cold these movies feel to me. I think that's more about the stories and the characters than it is anything. Because I mean, Ryan Gosling in Blade Runner 2049 and everybody in this movie, it's the the characters are just kind of a little colder. I mean, but is that because we're focusing more on the world building than we are on the, on, on, I don't think so. I don't think you can blame the, I mean the, the big world building, I think, yeah, I don't think it does. But let me, I just saw today an article on IndieWire, Francis Ford Coppola. He's a bit cranky. You know? Yeah. He's become a, a, a Marvel hater, <laughs> um, just like Scorsese. He called Marvel movies despicable. <laughs> I mean, come on. People are having fun at the movies. So Francis Ford Coppola said, Dune... Um, and um, no, uh, what is the other one? No time to die. No time to die. Mm-hmm. He says both of those. It's basically like the big blockbuster, big budget movies. You could just splice one scene from one and put it into the other one, and it's all the same. Yeah. And it's really a shame because they're basically these big budgets are ruining these uh, Denny Villeneuve's of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, do you agree? Are you as cranky as Francis Ford Coppola? No, but I don't think that it, that we should be surprised that these <laughs> old guys who have dedicated yeah. their life to making movies <laughs> and came up in the 70s are annoyed that Marvel has taken over the world. And, you know, it's like they've yeah. released six movies a year and they all kind of look the same. Now, grouping Dune together with No Time to Die, I'm guessing he hasn't seen either of them because these are two of... <laughs> One, the the better big budget movies, but two, I think the the more the most identity, uh, the most separate identity compared to the other big budget movies that mm-hmm. come out per year. I mean, you can't you, you they're not the same James no. Bond and Dune in any way. But I get what he's saying. Um, but I I kind of am not interested in 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 going down the like let's all hate Francis Ford Coppola now because everyone went through that with Scorsese (laughs) for a while. And it just creates this sort of divide where it's, you know, we sort of operate under this delusion that there's not enough room for both. Like you can have big budget fun movies and artsy, you know, micro budget. I like to think that there's room for all of it. 
Uh, my, my third question is uh, from Kevin Mayer of The Times. He gave this movie two out of five stars, stating that every frame is spectacular, but yet Dune is also kind of boring. Do you agree? Yep. <laughs> oh, come on. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I this don't, is, I would give it a higher score tragedy. than him. I, I, I did like this movie a lot. Did you I, do your letterbox on this? What, what, yeah, I gave, it, I gave it a three and a half on letterbox. I think that there is a lot to like mm-hmm. in this movie, but I got a quote from Peter Rayner that I feel like sums up my experience. Where's Peter Rayner again? Um, let me let me see. You've heard this. Peter Rayner, he's from the Christian Science Monitor. Oh. He says, I admire any director who is able to create a self-contained world on such a scale, but this is an epic for the eye, not the heart. That's a positive review. And I think that yeah. that aligns with, with my feelings on it, that I'm able to look at yeah. the eye spectacle and appreciate it and say, this is very cool, but I don't leave the theater feeling any deep feelings or... Mm-hmm feeling compelled to tell people that they need to see this. Well, it's interesting because there have been movies that I have said, no, that can't make my top five because it didn't hit me in the gut, mm-hmm. you know? But sometimes when a movie is, I, I don't know, the big sci-fi um, sweeping visuals that this has and pulls off so well, it kind of, it it overwhelms that part of it for me. I was like, every time a new shot came, I was like, wow, wow, wow. And um, there's enough of the characters that it, it, it kept me going. I really like this. Um, but I won't say whether I keep it a kicky yet until, you know, after a couple trivia points. Okay. Let's hear them. Um, <laughs> there's more than 2000 visual effects were shot for this movie. Uh, the shots used a chroma key process that visual effects supervisor Paul Lambert called sand screen. So instead of using green screen, they use brown colored tones hmm. for the desert. Kind of interesting. Okay. Um, Hans Zimmer had worked with Villeneuve on Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049. And um, Christopher Nolan asked him to come and do Tenet. But Zimmer opted for, for Dune because he loved the book. So he's one of those characters um and he did not want the soundtrack to sound like his previous work so he used instruments atypical of a western orchestra an approach he called anti-groove the music is is great i love the bagpipes showing up you mm-hmm. know all of a sudden there was a really great uh mixture of you know ancient and super fi- super sci-fi you know future um i love the uh weird religious culty vibes of you know the witches too yeah um, if you want to they, learn it gives more... ancient versus you know this this clash of ancient versus uh future is is really fascinating i think if you want to learn more about how he put these songs together and what he was thinking there's a really good podcast called song exploder hmm. that he's on and he kind of breaks down the title track for this for this movie and sort of um, you know, breaks it down layer by layer, teaches you sort of how he put together and what he was thinking and what instruments were used. It's pretty interesting. Very cool. So keep it or kick it? I'll keep it. <laughs> With no other movies of 2021 to compare it to. <laughs> um, I think that it's... Well, we have Power of the Dog. I think it's a, it's a technical <laughs> achievement, but yeah. that sort of inhuman quality of, of Villeneuve, I think is pretty strong. Yeah. And I, I, I don't connect emotionally to this. Yeah. Um, but it's great to look at, and you know, I'm glad I saw it in the theater. You know what else is a, a plus for this is the the chosen one narrative. I always kind of am intrigued by those. Hmm. Um, 
So uh, in the next episode, we are going to be talking about The Power of the Dog, Netflix mov- a Netflix Western by Jane Campion set in 1925 Montana, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Cody Smith-McPhee. It got 12 Oscar nominations. Find us at bestpicturethis.com on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you listen. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Best Picture This. And for 16 years of Golden Takes, head over to Letterboxd slash Mike Cavalieri. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash bestpicturethis. Thanks to WNDF and the illustrious Mark Gilliland for producing. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to Best Picture This, which is perfectly fine to listen to on your phone, even if you don't have a big screen nearby. That's true. 